Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. going on everyone welcome to another episode of bro history it's danny abdeljabar i almost said it was danny zamoda <laughs> danny zamoda <laughs> i almost said it was danny zamoda man i don't even know my first name it's henry zamoda and danny abdeljabar what's up brother how is the great um 51st state of puerto rico it's chilling man as per usual uh finally in a more permanent settlement than uh the last couple of weeks I uh, got a little apartment, and uh, today I'm uh, podcasting from a box fort. I see that. You look like you are um, podcasting from the street. <laughs> Definitely not the street, uh, but it's close to it. Uh, yeah, no, I, I just got this new apartment. and um, It looks the- like you're a crazy person who's who's um, just on the street. It's like, I'm going to go on my time machine. Like, I'm podcasting <laughs> right now. Mr. President... <laughs> Answer these questions, Mr. President. We need to stop Stalin from revising the time crystals. Uh, No. Uh, Yeah, I I needed to set up something in this room because, you know, we don't have any furniture yet. And when when you're in a concrete room, you know, with marble floors. Well, it's not marble. It's like fucking porcelain. I don't know. Hard floors, not wood. And everything just reverberates in this room really badly. Uh, so I needed to do something to break up the sound a little bit. So I took some boxes from a, from a couch that we bought, propped them up, stood upright, uh, and I got my computer resting on a flight case uh, that I used to bring it here to Puerto Rico. And there is a sheet draped over the boxes, and I'm literally in a box fort. So it kind of shows you the versatility of, of this show. I mean, we'll podcast from anywhere. Fucking closets, Pilates machines, box forts whatever as long as there's internet right <laughs> that's all you need you don't need to invest so much into a fancy studio because uh as long as you have a microphone that works you can get the, yeah. the audio that's in. on the penis setting that's <laughs> yes, on the right setting the penis setting um yeah the microphone that i have has a button that makes it the audio sound crappy and i don't know why there's a button that, that why they include that in the settings um, but yeah, today is a, a special day. Well, I guess it was a special week, uh, week for us because mm-hmm. we finally, after a long time, over two years, how long have we been doing the show? For almost three years now? it's been three. Yeah, I think it's been three. Damn. It's been a long time. We finally hit a million downloads. Now, a million downloads. A million, we, hit, we finally hit a million downloads. And I know what you're most likely thinking you know, any it group of idiots can start a podcast and after three years get a million downloads. Well, it was hard for us. It was hard for us, so shut up. 
<laughs> yeah, man. I, I just want to thank everybody for that that stuck around and is still listening and is consistently listening. We, we really, really appreciate all the support there. It really validates what we're doing. Um, and you know, this is this is a huge milestone, I think, for any podcast. You know, and and uh, I'm really excited that we can share our uh, pontifications about uh, geopolitics and history with you guys. It's it's been a fun ride, and I I can't wait for the next million. You know, it's funny because um, if you look at like very large shows, so Joe Rogan has something around like 11 million listeners an episode. <laughs> yeah. So just that. to compare, like we're like a top third oh, rate no, podcast. No, yeah, no, we're we're definitely we're the up top there's... of the third rate podcast. Yeah, we're no, we're definitely right. out there. I think we we don't give us, ourselves enough credit. I was reading a little while ago a study that was done by Libsyn, who's the largest podcast. Um, hosting platform uh and they uh were writing that something like uh you're in the top 10 percent of downloads and podcasts if you are hitting about 3500 uh downloads per episode in any 30-day period and we're crushing that number like by a lot uh and that number has been steadily increasing and that's that's really really cool uh what sucks is that um you can't really get statistics from other shows unless they actually say so, which is like kind of weird. Like I want to see where we where we stack rank against everybody else, you know? Uh, because I, I listen to some other podcasts and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, we just hit like you know X number of downloads," and I'm like, "So how long did it take you?" <laughs> you know? I'm like, "What's your download per per uh, episode?" I'm always curious about that, you know? Little little dick measuring contest a little bit, but you know, you want to know how you're doing. <laughs> I like metrics. So I guess today we're going to be talking about Russia and China. China. There has been a bunch of stuff being published lately about the increased cooperation between Russia and China. That's always been a topic, but you're seeing a lot more stuff right now being published about it. And um, who's been, you know, publishing a lot of articles on this has been the Wall Street Journal. They seem to be to be way on this. The other day, I sent this article to you. They published um, this real big article last week called uh, "China and Russia: Military Cooperation Raises Prospect of New Challenges to American Power." And in this article, it reports that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence reported that Beijing and Moscow are now more aligned than at any point in the past 60 years. And then, um, you know, this touches, um, you know, some of the joint military drills that they did or they have been doing, most notably when they had in northwestern China in August, while at the same time while the U.S. was in the middle of pulling out of Afghanistan. So um, the exercises were the first to use a joint Russian-Chinese command and control setup signaling a growing ability to coordinate any potential action against the U.S., according to an analyst. Uh, roughly 13,000 troops and hundreds of aircraft, drones, artillery pieces, anti-aircraft batteries, and armored vehicles gathered in the Ningxi province. And then the Ningxi province is in, um, I believe, northwestern China. So um, then it goes into some of the naval drills that they've been doing. And this is kind of historic because it's the first time they've really been doing this. So in October, and they've been doing these military uh, exercises for a pretty long time. This isn't that new, but I guess there's some, um, you know, things well, the, that have the, 
the interesting parts about that is is how much more frequently they're happening. And in and you're about to talk about the one in October. This is the first time that they've done a uh, naval drill uh, together, and that that kind of signals uh, two things: one, obviously, the, the continued military cooperation between the two countries, but also, you know, China's been ra- um, ramping up their uh, navy lately, and so this is the first time that they can actually, you know, like play with their toys. Uh, and not just by themselves, right? They're 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 doing it with the Russians, who already have a, a capable uh, navy. So that's that's an interesting thing, and it's it's obviously raises some concerns, I think, in the West because of uh, you know the the Asia Asia Pacific you know pivot that the United States has made, you know, to to focusing mostly on on uh, economics and and trade with Asia, uh, and also we've talked about things like the Taiwanese problem uh that china has and you know there's there's a lot of things that that make a naval drill between russia and china kind of scary a little bit you know especially for the west well here's here's what's interesting so um it was in october 10 chinese and russian warships they completed a circle around hanshu so hanshu is japan's main island with most of their major cities um and then so that means they went through the uh Sigoru Strait. So the strait between Honshu and Hokkaido, the Hokkaido is the northern island um, with their ski resorts and stuff like that. And um, so it's interesting that they went through that that strait and over the past, and they basically just circumvented the entire country. And then over the past few months, Russia and China, um, I guess there's been some bombers that have been going over the Sea of Japan or, in, you know, over Japan and, and South Korea, not over the actual countries, but like in their water uh, territory. Close, um, too close for comfort, let's put it that way. And then, yeah. yeah. So then there was another story published by the Wall Street Journal that was titled um, The Two-Headed Fight for Ukraine and Taiwan by Seth uh, uh, Kropsey, and this guy is a hardcore neoconservative from the Bush era. Um, I th- man, I forgot his exact position in the Bush um, White House, but he was like some type of media, whatever. He worked for George W. Bush, um, and he was you know heavily involved in like pushing for the Iraq War. And um, you know he basically paints the scenario. What if China and Russia invaded Ukraine and Taiwan subsequently? So, like one after another. That's that's, and, that's an interesting proposition. And he and he writes, with China and Russia in strategic cooperation, this is a very dangerous situation. The margin of force between potential enemies in the Western Pacific is far thinner than in Eastern Europe, given China's increasingly capable military. Russia wouldn't have to deploy major ground or naval units to the Asian Pacific, nor time its offensive with China. The Russian Pacific fleet has enough submarines to bog down Japanese and U.S. units needed to defend Taiwan and shielding the Japanese home islands. That would make China's mission much more likely to succeed. Roughly concurrent offensive operations in two hemispheres would overstress American and allied resources. Taiwan must become capable of defending itself but more broadly, the U.S. must begin thinking about its strategic challenges globally, not in regional uh, regional segments. This is a contest for Eurasia and thus for the world. Um, you know, whenever you hear in an article words like contest or power projection or gamesmanship, that's how you know mm-hmm. there's a neoconservative on the other side of that pen. <laughs> and then, <Yeah. laughs> or that typewriter. And then, um, you know, if you hear, if you're reading something, um, if you want to read a neoliberal 
when you start hearing uh, strategic partnerships and uh, international community and in, in a in a complete uh, over um, worship for you know promoting democracy. And that's when this more like kind of a neoliberal brand, but both are very similar and they both talk about um, the most common thing that you'll hear you'll read in like a either a neoconservative or a very neoliberal article is that you'll hear um, American credibility on the world stage. Like if you type that in Google, a million articles will just pop up American credibility on the world stage and yearning for freedom. That's right. another Countries one. Just type in yearning for freedom and you're going to find um, a million articles like, oh, they're yearning for freedom. Um, we need to so, give it to them. You know, it's I, it's a neoconservative article. And um, you have to understand that this guy works for, I think he works for the Hoover Institute or no, the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., which is, which is a neoconservative think tank. And, um, you know, they're, they're basic. I, I mean, I, I feel like these articles and these are being published to, you know, promote defense spending like that to be part of the, the, the larger narrative that the U.S. needs to be more involved in that region. It even makes a claim that the U.S. needs to, um, the United States is too regionally focused. Like the U.S. isn't um, not focused on a military presence in Asia. Like what do you call military bases in Japan? And in South Korea, right. it's not like the U.S. doesn't <laughs> exactly. have a presence in all of these areas and all we these have like places. Thirty thousand troops in, in yeah. South Korea this isn't like the most troops we have anywhere there. <laughs> like it makes it, it's like you're supposed to leave it up to your imagination that the U.S. just has completely left that area of the world. Like, oh, it's just that they're going in there unmolested, and you know they're bullying. They're going to bully everyone, um, and you know to some extent. I mean, they did. I mean. I wouldn't say China. China is kind of a bit of a bully in some regards, but um, you know, I think it's over. I think it's uh, over alarming to insinuate that they're going to coordinate this grand, um, you know, Game of Thrones style uh, Michael Corleone Godfather type, um, you know, um, you know, killing Mo Green and the five families. Uh, the heads of the five family type thing, like invading Ukraine and then invading Taiwan, that would just be so large. And there'd be such severe consequences for doing that. I think neither of them would want to actually do that. But not to mention we'd see it coming. Like we talked about, we talked about this for Taiwan. You know, we would see it literally miles away. Uh, We would know. To to their credit, I mean, I don't want to say to their credit, but what is true is that there, it is definitely true that Russia and China's relations have been improving. And right now they, they really are probably at the best they've ever been, or at least the best they've been since the, the Cold War era. Because in the 1960s, and I want to let's jump into the, the history of uh, Chinese and Russian relations. But in sure. the 1960s, the Soviet Union seriously considered nuking China over a border <laughs> dispute. So. Yeah relations have come a long way yep yep and we'll definitely get to get to that but i think you know it might make sense for us to talk about in general uh the early history of russian and chinese relations because you know i'm just going to come out and say it i think the idea that russia and china are going to form some kind of military pact or some kind of military alliance is is a I mean, it's not impossible, but you need to see all of the 
ways that Russia and China have interacted over the many, many years of their relationship because to, to kind of get an idea for how feasible something like that would be. Uh, and so we can start super, super long time ago. You know, like they, Russia and China both lived under the Mongol Empire together, as an example. Um, you know, in this, and, and they didn't really have a lot of contact with one another, though, uh, during that time. It wasn't until the, the early 1600s or so that they actually um, crossed paths, if you will. Um, when, the, when the Tsardom of Russia or uh, Muscovy uh, made contact with the Manchus, when they started expanding eastward, um, the, the Tsardom of Russia was the, was the Russian state before the Russian Empire, before, before Peter the Great um, mm-hmm. upgraded from Russia to, you know, from, from uh, Tsardom to Empire. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what made, this is a state in the 16th, 16th and 17th century, this is the Russian state that makes most of its territorial gains. Right, right. And they move eastward, and that's, that's when they... Uh, actually start coming into contact with the Chinese and the Chinese empire there. And when they actually first met, the the Chinese thought the Russians were just like barbarians that were looking to pay tribute um, so that they can trade or whatever. And and obviously the Russians didn't like that so much because they, you know, they saw themselves as like, oh, look at us, we're Russia over an empire, blah, blah, blah. So they didn't really like being treated like some group of barbarians that are looking to pay homage to the <laughs> Chinese emperor. So, you know, from the very beginning, I think their relationship was kind of off to a bad start. Um, but, you know, skipping ahead a bunch by the 1800s, uh, the century of humiliation had begun for China and we've done episodes on this, so I'm not going to go into too much detail there. Uh, you can go back and listen to some of those if you're interested. What's important to note from that period though, is that, uh, China was very isolationist during this time. And, you know, with other isolationist countries throughout history, it tends to attract a lot of colonial powers to target them, right? Generally speaking, in this time period, people didn't like when a country was isolationist and they wanted to go ahead and like either totally annex them or, you know, dominate them through through forced trade, uh, you know, see Japan and, you know, uh, gunboat diplomacy as an example, right? Um, but, you know, the Russian Empire happened to be one of those colonialists uh, during this time. And, and by 1860, you know, Russia ends up annexing an area of northeast China known as Outer Manchuria. And you'll, you'll want to remember that part for later. Yeah, well, um, 19th century, I think Russia, they they annex around almost like a million square miles of, uh, oh. I guess, what is then the Manchu territory. Mm-hmm. And um, the treaties that Russia annexes territories is, is known as the unequal treaties in China. Well, yeah, because um, it was pretty one-sided and i think yeah. they russia would probably have taken more if they didn't lose a war against japan who also wanted manchuria yeah well that's um so russia's expansion ended only when it was uh defeated by japan in the you know 1904 to you know 1905 war uh against japan and, and which which effectively dislodged them from Manchuria. And I mean, I guess you can even argue that the humiliation from um, the loss to, you know, what they would have considered a second tier power or a new and emerging power in Japan was kind of the beginning of the end for the czar, for Tsar Nicholas. Um, So you can kind of draw the parallels of how that, obviously, you know, things go a lot worse during World War I. 
right. but it's kind of and, the beginning of the end. And, and I bring up a lot of these like kind of more ancient uh, relationships because just to kind of highlight, like they didn't, Russia and China didn't start off with a very good relationship, you know, and it led up to the point where they are actually taking land from China. Uh, Russia was taking land from China. So, you know, that that's an important thing to note. And uh, I'm going to skip ahead a bit and, uh, and move pretty quickly through this part. But I want to talk a little bit about you know, kind of these transitional phases that happened after this point uh, of Russia and China um, to kind of highlight this um, a little bit more because this is where it starts to change a little bit. Uh, so by the 20th century, the Russian Empire had collapsed uh, after the First World War. And they, you know, and obviously part of it was, you know, the war that they had with Japan. And there were many other reasons too. But, you know, they went through this phase of transitions of government. So first they set up the Republic of Russia, and that didn't last very long. And then later they formed the Communist Soviet Union. Uh, but a similar transformation was happening in China at the same time. So the Qing Dynasty collapsed, uh, and they set up a Chinese Republic. And that Republic was torn apart by civil war and war against Japan. And then they also later formed the Communist People's Republic of China. So they both kind of had the same track of changes and of transitions uh, all at the same time. And, and this is the start of a the first major change in relationship between Russia and China, because now they're both communist. Uh, and so they form an alliance uh, based on their shared communist ideologies in 1950. But that didn't last very long either. <laughs> so splits and, in the I think, I think it's worth pointing out. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out about, you know, the common turn their communist international group that used to try to spread communism worldwide. Um, so they actually had kind of a weird relationship with China during this time. So in the, the periods after World War One, after the Soviet Union was established, um, they would actually support both political spectrums in China. So they would support the CCP and the Kuomintang, so the Nationalist Party. And uh, Chiang Kai-shek, he actually went to the Soviet Union for, I mean, he, he's a, the leader of the, 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 the Nationalist Party during World War II. He actually, um, his political schooling was in the Soviet Union, um, and he actually grew to hate them while he was there. He started hating communists. But the CCP and the Chinese nationalists were once one united coalition in China, and then eventually the, you know, they, they split up and... Um, the, the Kuomintang, you know, essentially tries to marginalize them out of existence. And, um, but prior to that, the CCP was used to help the Chinese Nationalist Party with things like propaganda and organization. Um, because these leftist groups, these Marxist leftist groups, you know, maybe they were, they were no good at, at economics, but they were really good at organizing, and like political organization and stuff like that. Um, so they really helped the CCP with, you know, their own uh, political organization. Uh, and, you know, during the Chinese Civil War, the Soviet Union actually supported the Kuomintang, the, the Chinese nationalists, because they were expected to win the war. And what was more important at the time was that they had a solid ally in fighting Imperial Japan during the war. So they had a kind of a weird relationship. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it, the allied position was not to um, support the CCP. It was to support the Chiang Kai-shek, like the amount of money that the allies gave to 
to, to uh, Chiang Kai-shek was ridiculous. It was, it was one of the largest projects of foreign aid ever. So mm-hmm. kind of surprising how they lost. This, this sort of, <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, yes, if uh, it's not really surprising now when you look at like Afghanistan and stuff like that. Right? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not. No. Like the failed they states. Back that, the wrong horse. That's all. Well, the CCP gained, I think there's a lot of theories and, and reasons why, but the most common one that I read is that the the uh, Chinese nationalists lost a lot of their legitimacy um, during the war because they felt a lot of people in the public thought that they were uh, making too many concessions. That's one of the reasons, just more than that, obviously. But um, it was a weird relationship. It wasn't just purely ideologically driven. Uh, the Soviet Union just didn't um, automatically back the the uh, CCP, the, the the Chinese Communist side. Um, however, you know, after the war and after that movement, you know, after they were in 1949, when they emerge as the uh, government, the state power, you know, that's when they start to uh, form more formal ties. Right. And, and they were kind of buddy buddy. You know, they 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 did have a lot of, you know, the the a lot of the same ideas and a lot of the same goals in mind so it just made sense for them to to work together and and it was a pretty good period uh, in terms of relationships between the two but as i said before this relationship really didn't last very long and i want to spend some time focusing on on that divergence uh specifically in the communist ideology as well as you know some of the the differences they had in geopolitical strategy because i think I think talking about this helps shape the tone for a conversation about a potentially new like alliance today uh, because I think what you'll find is that there are many more differences in their opinions and in their geopolitics and in their strategies than there are commonalities uh, between the two. Now, uh, kind of jumping into that, I, I mentioned before that they both disagreed on you know, the future of communism um, after Stalin died. Uh, And this kind of resulted in what's called the Sino-Soviet split, where the alliance was broken and they became rivals. And and by the time Stalin died, there was a pretty big international debate among communist countries about the future of communism and its relationship to the West. And so to this point, the Soviet Union was basically uh, the leader in global communist, you know, in, in that global communist revolution. And uh, the, the smaller or more developing nations that were moving towards communism or had just switched to communism, they, they looked to the Soviet Union for advice and support and, and of course, aid, both financial and military. Um, but uh, in 56, when, uh, when Stalin died and Khrushchev took power, uh, you know, this, he began a pretty radical change, you know, in the Soviet Union and in communism generally. Uh, and it was called the de-Stalinization process, <laughs> not to be confused with de-Salinization, which I think is pretty funny. Every time I read that word, I think it's de-Salinization for some strange reason. Uh, um, but anyway, he... What he, is de-Salinization? Uh, it's just when you take salt out of water oh, uh, so that you okay. can drink it or use it. So basically, you just boil water. That's desalinization, And then the salt stays, and then you get water that's 
clean and able to drink. It's actually a really good idea. Um, it's just really energy intensive. They should really start thinking about making that better. But if we get fusion energy eventually, we can probably desalinize the entire fucking ocean if we wanted to. Uh, and we won't have a problem with water scarcity. That's a different story though. I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole. Um, where was I? Oh yeah, I was talking about uh, Khrushchev. So Khrushchev comes into power and he shakes shit up and he gives this he gives this speech privately uh, to the Soviet Union's Communist Party uh, and the speech is called On the Cult of Personality and Its Consequences. And this is a fucking crazy story, dude. Um, so in a nutshell, Khrushchev basically gives the party a rundown on all the fucked up things that Stalin was doing while he was in power in the name of communism. Hard air quotes there. Uh, while at the same time he still wanted to continue doing communism, right? He wasn't shaking it up that much, but... He was throwing some shade, and I'll say that for sure. So a couple things he was talking about, he was, ta he was accusing Stalin of starting a, quote, cult of personality, which is literally contrary to Marxist theory. Like, you know, the, the Communist Manifesto talks about, like, avoiding the cult of personality. So, you know, this was a pretty strong claim against uh, Stalin, and he was totally right. But, you know, nevertheless, that wasn't the, the status quo. So this was pretty big shake up so he was talking shit about stalin's personality you know uh all kinds of funny shit about that uh he was um speaking out against stalin not listening to collective leadership um so basically the whole point of communism with it was that everybody has a say in like you know the party collectively leads and there's not one person that leads uh, which kind of lends itself to the idea of Stalin creating a cult of personality around himself. Because uh, Stalin t tended not to listen to collective leadership at all. He just did whatever the fuck he wanted. Um, and that was against party norms. Uh, I think it was probably everyone knew about it, but nobody, nobody had said it out loud before. Um, and he was talking about things like executions against, quote, enemies who were just his political adversaries at the time and not really enemies of the state. Uh, he was talking about mass incarceration. I think at one point he talked about like a million and a half people were um, mass incarcerated, Bolsheviks and stuff like that. Uh, and he was also talking about forced deportation and ethnic cleansing and a bunch of really crazy shit. Uh, and this speech ended up gets getting leaked by the Israeli intelligence agency Shin Bet uh, and gets, um, I think it was published by a Polish journalist, if I'm not mistaken, like a Jewish-Polish journalist. Anyway, uh, so it goes all over the place, and uh, apparently in the room, uh, the reactions were crazy as hell. Uh, so some people were laughing and cheering. You know, there was there was reports of some people having heart attacks during the speech, uh, and some people even committed suicide after the speech. Like I guess maybe out of guilt for the fucked up things that they supported. It was pretty crazy if even half of the shit is true that came out of this. Did you hear about this, dude? I have I have heard about that, um, and um, I I don't know if I believe that people are killing themselves over it. People are having heart attacks. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's how the that's how the story goes, you know. It was it was mixed reactions, but it was like major crazy reactions. And and I think the point though, like outside of the, you know, the the legend of what happened in the room, the reactions outside was a major shock, you know, for both communists and non-communists all over the world. I think in the United States, uh, there was something like because the United States at the time had a pretty pretty decently sized uh, communist party. And they lost like 30,000 members, you know, within like a few weeks of this being leaked because people were ashamed <laughs> about what Stalin was doing and, 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 you know, how they were, how he was doing it. Um, but, you know, this was the first major break in the communist relationship between Russia and China, though. Um, Stalin had huge, huge shoes to fill. And the relationship with China basically hinged on how the Soviet Union conducted its foreign policy. And... Mao actually liked Stalin and his policies. You know, he saw him as a strong leader. And I guess, you know, for Mao, coming off the century of humiliation, the only way to regain, like, national honor was through the strength, even if brutal strength. He didn't care. He was just like, we have to, you know, reclaim our spot and come out of this, you know, century of humiliation. But I don't, I don't need to get into the fucked up things Mao did. We have other episodes for that. But I think it's clear that his style of politics mirrored much more closely Stalin than Khrushchev in that respect. So understandably, Mao hated this speech and he called it revisionist. Uh, And he just straight up hated Khrushchev and his policies in general. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of shit talking that was happening during this time. Um, But yeah, so as I said before, I think there there was a pretty big power vacuum that was left by Stalin and both both the Soviet Union and China were competing for influence uh, in the communist world, and and that caused some problems. Uh, Interestingly, and because we're coming off of a a whole string of episodes on this particular topic, the Balkans were a pretty hot issue, where individual countries were split between either Soviet or Chinese influence. And, uh, you know, to to highlight some of that, China talked shit about Yugoslavia. Uh, So they were saying that they weren't socialist enough, because they had a mixed economy. You know, we talked a lot about Yugoslavia before they broke up and they were actually, you know, doing kind of a semi-capitalist economy. Uh, and Mao really didn't like that. He actually specifically um, criticized uh, Tito, uh, Josef Broz Tito, for, for his um, foreign policy because it was not aligned and it was totally separate um, from the Sino-Soviet geopolitical, you know, sphere. So I didn't really like them very much. On the other hand, uh, for other countries, like Khrushchev criticized Albania. Uh, he called them a politically backwards state. And, you know, he was talking shit about uh, Evner Hoxha, who was basically a Stalinist. Um, and he criticized Albania for allying with China instead of the Soviet Union. And that provoked the Soviet-Albanian split. So they, they cut ties with one another. Um, 
Oh, you know, I missed one part. The the Soviet Union, they actually um, showed some moral support for the Tibetan uprising in China before that point, um, which was obviously pissed off Mao. I mean, think about it. Like, you know, uh, you got China trying to be one contiguous nation and you know, the Tibetans want to break off and do their own thing. And the Soviet Union turns around and starts saying, oh, no, yeah, like we support the Tibetan uprising. You know, so that's that's like a pretty... That's pretty crazy. <laughs> you know, like imagine if the UK supported Texas's and, uh, you know, independence movement or something like that. You know, it'd be weird. Um, or or, so or, that, that, or if um, like another country supported like an American Indian tribe. So let's mm-hmm. just say if uh, that's right, like Canada supported the uh, like crazy the Cherokee nation. Yeah, yeah. For sure, yeah, it it would be it would be weird, and it would definitely hurt the relationship between the two. Um, but I think what's probably most important is like, most important is like here um, issues that kind of popped up because Mao took a very aggressive posture against the West, and there's a whole yeah specifically the U.S. But there's a whole backstory behind that, right? Like he had motivations to do so, and a lot of it stemmed from the the century of humiliation but generally speaking he he was pretty aggressive towards the west and the u.s and uh this worried the soviet union and specifically khrushchev you know because they thought Mao was going to start another nuclear war um so you know in 62 china formally breaks off relations with the soviet union because khrushchev didn't go to war with the u.s over the cuban missile crisis and so basically Mao called khrushchev a pussy for it he was like, I don't know, you gotta, that's, you know, we gotta be strong communists and we gotta, we gotta fight them, you know. Um, and the Cuban Missile Crisis basically, you know, uh, made for most of the world disarmament a priority um, for everyone except for China. And, you know, the US, the UK, the Soviet Union, you know, all the major parties basically agreed to a partial nuclear test ban treaty in 1963. Uh, and that formally stopped nuclear tests in the Earth's atmosphere, uh, in outer space and underwater, but it still did allow them to uh, test underground um, to blow up bombs and shit. But uh, in that time, China was just starting working on their uh, weapons program. It was called Project 596, and it was still in its infancy, and Mao saw this ban treaty as like all of the rest of the nuclear powers of the world trying to stop China from becoming a nuclear power, which um, I think that's actually probably true. <laughs> you know, I think that's at least part of it, you know. Um, but to make a long story short, Soviet Union cuts off China from assistance with nukes, but they still get the bomb anyway. Um, they figure it out. Uh, and, you know, the, these are pretty big rifts that that are coming up, you know, between geopolitics between nuclear weapons um you know between how they conduct the soviet uh ideology and hopefully now you have kind of a taste for a lot of these differences that china and russia had during you know during the soviet union i mean they went from allies to enemies in just like a few decades and particularly all the shit talking that you start seeing and geopolitical um Excuse me. And geopolitical uh, slights that you see that they take against each other really hurt that relationship. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, we now see another coming back together. So it's honestly the relationship between Russia and China reads like a bad 
you know, boyfriend, girlfriend relationship, you know, like they, you know, one cheats on the other one and then they break up and they talk shit about each other. They block each other on Facebook. And then, you know, later they get that late night you up texts and then they kind of hook up again and (laughs) it kind of keeps going off and on and off and on for a really long time. Um, But, you know, once the Soviet Union collapses, this is like another one of those turning points when they come back together. And now this rivalry that you see between China and Russia is almost totally gone. And the two nations start rebuilding a relationship. And that relationship was first built around trade. Uh, So in the 90s, the trade relationship was something like five to eight billion dollars. But between then and 2018, so in 2018, it exceeded $107 billion. And that's expected to grow to over $200 billion by 2024. Yeah, so um, yeah, bilateral trade between Russia and China has been increasing. If you look at uh, 2021, so they exceeded $100 billion in trade, uh, I think by, no, by I want to say no, October. So they had three months left and they had already hit $100 billion in, uh, in trade, in bilateral trade. And that was um, already equal to the amount of trade they did in t- the year prior. Um, so that, I'm not sure what that number is right now. I don't think the economic numbers are out from Russia, but I'm sure that is um, higher. And... You know they've been working on a lot of infrastructure projects together. So they recently mm-hmm. built in um, they built a, a rail bridge between them, um, spanning Siberia's uh, Amur River. Yep. So they're building these projects. There's investment. There's trade. Um, you know, a new gas pipeline went operational called the Power of Siberia Pipeline, and it's projected to deliver as much as uh, 1.3 trillion cubic feet of Russian natural gas to China by 2025. And, um, you know, there's also other projects that China finances, like uh, Russia's Yamal LNG project. And it's just a mm-hmm. huge natural gas production and shipping project in Siberia. Um, mm-hmm. On the flip side, Russia is China's chief arms supplier. So Russia's selling them S-400s, they're selling them S-35s, uh, jet fighters. Um, they're even helping them co-develop uh, China's anti-missile early warning system. So um, yep. they don't, I, and that's according to Putin. That Putin said that in, I think, two or three years ago, in 2019, I think he had said that they're working on that. And then he couldn't say anything else because it's too, um, you know, it's too sensitive, the data, what's going right. to be put in this early warning system. Right. But there's other projects, right. too, like, you know, the, right. the B- the BRI and stuff like that. Yeah, Belt and Road Initiative. There's the Shanghai yeah. Cooperation Organization. Like all of these things have tightened cooperation between the two nations uh, very recently. And, and we also see this friendship popping up uh, in the UN Security Council. So China and Russia both have seats on the Security Council, and there's only five permanent seats. And you'll often see them join together to, to veto US policy. So you know, on the UN Security Council, one veto would be enough. Like Russia could just say, nope, and that would be it, right? But when you start getting two votes, it kind of increase, increases the legitimacy of the, of the vetoes. So they tend, to, they tend to agree on a lot of things, just to like, you know, stick it to the US, which is pretty funny. Um, now, militarily, there's no official pact between both nations, but we have seen a lot of 
military cooperation in the form of the joint military exercises. And we talked about a bunch of them, you know, at the beginning of the show. Uh, I think one that we didn't mention was the Vostok um, 2018 military drill, which was massive. There was 100,000 soldiers uh, and China participated in that. I think they, they offered up something like 3,200 troops, which is not a small amount. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of military exercises that they are uh, um, doing with each other and even more that they're planning for the future. But yeah, it, it just begs the question, like, is a Russia-China alliance on the way? And, you know, I guess to think about that critically, you have to think about like what an alliance is. And an alliance is, is made when two or more states share a common enemy and they're unable to take that enemy on by themselves. So basically they combine their powers to survive. And for Russia and for China, that common enemy happens to be the United States. Um, I mean, after decades of U.S. dominance, you know, both Russia and China are anxious, uh, to say the least. And, you know, Russia's messing around in Europe and in the Middle East and China's messing around in the Pacific. So they're kind of a U.S. target. I mean, just literally look at any you know major media they're messing today. around in the pacific and in, in the middle in europe i mean that's where they are as countries that's where they're located well you know i, th- I think to be clear about messing around is they're, that they're in europe and one's in pacific what, what i mean about messing around is like their expansion right so i think obviously the annexation of crimea is important uh they're um during the syrian uh civil war their closer uh, alliance with Syria and keeping, you know, keeping that uh, regime in power uh, is a form of messing around. You know, that's totally outside of their of their jurisdiction. And in China, you know, the the disputes over the the island chains uh, is a messing around. Uh, both concordantly uh, doing a lap around Honshu is messing around. I think a little bit. So you know, yeah, they happen to be in those territories, but. What I, what I mean by messing around is that they're they're pushing it a little bit, so you know that definitely worries the U.S. and NATO and and others, um, and that's evidenced in all of the media that you read about, you know, China and Russia joining together against you know the West or something like that. You know, it's 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 not it's not like wrong to ask the question for sure. You know, after when you consider all the things that are happening, um, but I think you know when you when you think about it and why it makes sense for the two to be allies, uh, you know, is because they complement each other. You know, an alliance between the two, where you know the economics of China and the military power of Russia, you know, it it would probably rival the West uh, for global supremacy. You know, because they complement each other. I mean, Russia is an enormous land power has tons of natural resource, specifically oil and gas. And they also have the world's largest nuclear arsenal and, and a huge high-tech military industry. You know, uh, the Russian population is kind of modest in, compar- in comparison to its size, but that's where China steps in. You know, China is a economic powerhouse. They have a massive population and that, that population rivals markets in the West. And you know, so much so that, that, you know, countries all over the world are, are looking for a piece of that pie. And it also has a lot of valuable deep water ports and its navy is growing uh, and its military is growing. But the downfall of China is that, you know, by all metrics, its military is not necessarily up to spec, right? It's pretty conventional uh, in that respect. And that's why the two really benefit each other. You know, they, they plug each other's weaknesses and they have a lot of con- a lot in common 
you know, for geopolitics, when you think about it and, and historically, both of these countries want a multipolar world. In, in other words, they don't want the U.S. to be the only major power. They want their, their say. You know, both are antagonistic to the West in some way. Uh, I'd argue probably less on the China side because they just want to make money everywhere. But I'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, and both hold a grudge, a grudge against the U.S. in one way or another. Um, but I think what they both want the most is just a more pull in global affairs. And when you look at it, you know, on a, on a surface level, it kind of looks like they're coming together as allies in this mission. You know, in 2020, China, you know, that was a pretty hostile year for them. You know, they trade wars and COVID-19 and so many other issues, you know, that, that, that got the U.S. apprehensions up for it, you know. And for Russia, you know, in the last several years, there have been multiple sanctions that hurt their economy, you know, so much that they've been seeking alternative markets. Um, and today, as we pointed out before, trade between Russia and China has been, you know, pretty high. And, and they're actually doing it in local currencies instead of dollars, which is, which is a pretty big shift. Politically, their relationship has been growing as well. Um, here's something interesting after being voted in. Uh, for his third term in 2012, Putin visited China first. And then a year later, she returned the favor uh, when he got into office. And Putin and she are buddies. I mean, they've met like 30 times in their career and they're very flattering of each other. So they, do, they, they would describe each other as like friends. It's actually, it's a little weird. <laughs> the, the way that they talk about each other is like very, uh, almost romantic in a way. Um, you know, obviously it's slowed down a little bit with COVID-19, but they, they still have been meeting, you know, very frequently. And I expect that they probably talk over the phone a lot. Um, and this relationship, you know, among the leaders of the two states has resonated super well with their populations. Um, if you poll Chinese people, I think that there was a uh, poll by the Chinese Global Times where they showed that more than half of Chinese view Russia as the most important relationships for international relationships. Uh, international relations and according to a Pew Research Center poll uh, the percentage of Russians who hold a favorable opinion of China is 71% and they happen to be the highest in the world for favorable opinions of China so you know that's um, that's interesting <laughs> you know so it does seem like they are aligning at least on a surface level but there are some issues about that well let me let me let me let me stop you right there because I just want to add two points and then maybe a counter argument to something you said but first and foremost i just want to go back to when you were saying that they complement each other so i think it's important to to pencil that down because you know they do like different things internationally so um in a way they really do complement each other so russia is in the business of providing security to its neighbors so i mean you could look at the case of countries like kazakhstan where yep. you know god knows what was happening there as far as like what spurred that we'll massive cover that, I think, deadly riot mm -hmm. however you know russia was the country that came in and, and you know was basically the peacekeeper over there like settling things down um they do that and then they also um export their natural resources so oil and gas now china is in the business of making cheap shit and then financing infrastructure infrastructure projects and russia so in a place like central asia where they could potentially compete 
So, you know, if you look at countries like uh, Kazakhstan and Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, mm-hmm. like all these countries in Central all Asia the stands, where right? mm-hmm. all, the st- all the stands, those are former Soviet Union bloc countries. Those right. are countries that you would see on a map and say, okay, like, you know, Russia and China could potentially compete for interest in here. I'm, most of these countries are very um, rich with natural resources. So you would think they'd be the natural battleground if there was a battleground. But the way it works is that China is, um, you know, Russia doesn't have the capital to invest in these companies. Right. So it's not like Russia could even, you know, do these big BRI type projects and, you know, um, and, and finance like these these different things that, right. you know, that um, create a lot of employment in these areas. So it's not like Russia could even do that. And also, I mean, I don't know how this really ties into the picture, but a lot of those countries in Central Europe, they don't like China. And uh, one of the reasons why they don't really like China is because, um, you know, they don't like the foreigners and coming in and, um, you know, dictating a lot of the um, buildup of infrastructure there. And they also, these, these are predominantly Muslim countries and they'll they see uh china as paranoid about um islamic extremism you mm-hmm. know with how they treat the uyghur muslims that's right so mm-hmm. they have a pretty sour taste in it and they and they actually do prefer russia and in russian media can actually be pretty negative about the bri project but they um and i think on a surface level but in uh i think in the in the and the powers of be, I think they they do, uh, you know, approve most of it. But I don't know if Russia's real payback from. I think there there really is a limit from. I think how much investment they're getting from the BRI project. I have to look more into that. Um, however, um, just to go back to what you were saying about um, um, them being antagonistic about the West, you can you can see. You can make the case that the reason why they're cooperating so much is because the West is antagonistic against those countries. Um, Agreed. I'd agree with that. So, yeah. So this these sanctions that are put on Russia, um, trade wars, these this commitment to protect Taiwan, this ironclad commitment to protect Taiwan in the case of a mm-hmm. war. Um, you know, they use the same words. The Biden administration used the same word uh, to describe commitments to both Ukraine and Taiwan. They use the word mm-hmm. ironclad. Now, I don't think that um, the Biden administration would act militarily. They basically said that they wouldn't act if Russia invaded Ukraine. They flat out said that. Biden right. himself said, like, no. If Russia invades Ukraine and we're just going to uh, do it to sanction routes, like we're going to we're going right. to sanction them. And um, we're not. He said he said, like, it's not worth dying over Ukraine, which Mm-hmm. You know, was I think it's the right call um, mm-hmm. to not risk um, nuclear war and um, or any with war at, Taiwan. Uh, with Taiwan, there's a lot more strategic um, uh, ambigu- ambiguity. So mm-hmm. they never said anything like they said. You know, it's rock hard. We're going to be there for Taiwan, but in reality, I don't really think they would. I don't. Yeah, think they, they didn't would, specify how they would be there. For, yeah, they said, for yeah, Taiwan. sure. And their strategy has always been, hey, like, we're not going to really tell them. Um, we're not going to really, uh, like, 
make a stand, so everyone's confused and is afraid to act. Right. So I don't think that they would. Uh, just you know, we've done a bunch of episodes on this. Um, mm-hmm. and we've had guests on talking about this too. I don't think the U.S. would would actually act militarily if if they did invade Taiwan. But just to go back, like with the combination of like you know commitments to um, countries that um, you know, even if you want to say that that they that Russia and China are being antagonistic with, if you want to go that route. Um, they feel like they're kind of forced into this alliance because of um, the United States That's fair. Um, making some form of commitment to these countries. Mm-hmm. And um, just the, the sanctions, like, you know, there's a strategy that some people have been um, um, writing about when it comes to dealing with Russia and China, where they want to pull Russia from China's orbit and have a friendlier relationship with Russia. Mm-hmm. And um, you'll hear that like on the Tucker Carlson show, like that's what Tucker Carlson wants to do. Um, like kind of like a right wing populist stance. Um, they're not the only ones, but they're a lot more antagonistic against China than they are Russia. Um, the more neoconservative right, the opposite, elements the opposite are. true, you know, for the other side too, you know, people, the other well, side both, of the political spectrum both, would so, want to have more harmony with China so that they can, you know, uh, alienate them from Russia, you know. So, yeah, there, there's I, I think a lot, there's of, more, I lot think, of forces. Yeah. So um, a couple of Democratic senators. So it, this is these are totally bipartisan issues like these are not it is not neatly aligned. The Democrats do want to do one thing and the Republicans want to do another thing. Um, right. If you look at like there, there's like a. I feel like most of the Republicans are kind of leaning towards a neoconservative element. I'm not sure what the exact number is, but like Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, um, that senator in Kansas, um, I forgot his name. Um, they want to, they were, um, well, Ted Cruz himself refused to um, to approve a, not, a Biden a cabinet uh, nomination if he didn't sanction the um Nord Stream pipeline. So mm-hmm. that's just an example. And then the other day, though, a couple of Democrats, they wrote this letter in the Washington Post about how the U.S. needs to really, see, you know, provide a lot more weapons to Ukraine. Um, like Tim Kaine was one of them. Um, provide a lot more weapons to Ukraine, make a commitment militarily to Ukraine. So it's both parties. It's not right. one party who's decided to do one or another. But right. You know, the current, the Biden administration would never make, or I don't really think any administration that is likely to be in power over the next, like, eight years. Who knows what could happen, though? You know what I mean? Um, even a Trump, the Trump administration was, like, way harder than on Russia than the Biden administration is right now. Mm-hmm. And just, I think, a lot because of how big of a, you know, because of the potential scandals and stuff and how he was kind of painted in a box. But Russia... Trump had to turn around and be hard on Russia. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. Just so it didn't look like, oh, like now he's um, playing nice with Russia and after all this bullshit. All right. This, despite um, what the Democrats want to say, like there there were many more sanctions that were placed on Russia, things that were m- much, m- much more painful uh, than in prior administrations. So, you know. Yeah. There was that. So, and then Trump started arming Ukraine started providing a lot more uh, lethal aid to Ukraine. 
Yeah, let's just so, give him some guns. It'll be fine. Just give him some guns. It'll be fine. So, man, I'm losing my train of thought right now. So, well, I don't maybe think we can, any... We... I don't... Or here, let me just pull... Let me finish. I know what I'm, how I'm going to finish this. So, I don't think right. that any administration, at least right now, would make the... Um, would offer the sanction relief to Russia that would bring them back into their orbit because I don't think it would be politically feasible for them yeah. right now. Um, mm-hmm. At least with their like special interest groups that back them, it wouldn't be political f- politically feasible with them. So I don't think that would ever happen. Like I don't, at least right now, maybe that can happen in the future, but I don't think that they ever that could hap- be a possibility right now where there would be like a real initiative to pull Russia out of China's orbit. Um, right. Well, I mean, that kind of brings you in, into a bit of an impasse, right? So if it's not politically feasible for the United States or the West, generally speaking, to ease up on, you know, our antagonistic, you know, behavior towards either Russia or China, right? If, if that's not politically feasible, then the, the alternative, it seems, is that they will continue to, to align themselves with each other uh, at, as a natural you know, like recourse, like why wouldn't they? Uh, yeah, and we, I mean, and we they're kind of forced it. with no other option. Like you're, you're, you're talking about. So both of these countries, they have very long histories. Um, they both are proud. They both, mm-hmm. you know, like you said earlier, they don't want a. They want a multipolar world. They want right. They want to actually have strategic influence in where their countries are located. They want to have more of a. They don't want to be dominated by the U.S. Right. You know, they're not puppet. They don't want to be dominated by the U.S. That's the best way to say it. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, of course they're going to align with each other 
if if that's their main prerogative um yeah, but the, you're kind the, of forced the, to do that then then you have to ask the question like could it be possible and i think if you you know on the surface level based on everything we've said it seems like they are orbiting each other and they're coming closer and closer together but would something like a alliance between the two of them even be a possibility between the two of them and i think if you start really digging into it you're going to start seeing a lot of of issues that would surround a sino-russian alliance and i think that's maybe we can pivot a little bit and talk about those okay so um all right so some issues that come to my mind is that i mean first and foremost yeah they don't have a formal defense alliance um so another thing is that china has to cooperate with nato to advance the bri across europe right so they have really good china has a great relation well i don't know great might be too strong of a word but good enough they have good relationships with ukraine they have um good relationships with countries that hate russia Mm -hmm. um they russia on the flip side sells weapons to india as well so and that's all in go ahead china and russia I mean, uh, China and India, they had a, a border dispute where no guns were fired. It was kind of a weird occurrence yeah, they where beat the shit a bunch out of guys with sticks got into, they pulled up their sticks and they, they literally beat each other to death with sticks and stones and stuff. It's, <laughs> it's kind crazy. of an insane story. Yeah. But a bunch of guys, a bunch of soldiers on their border in the Himalayan mountains, they, um, instead of picking up their rifles, and attacking each other and shooting each other. They just got into a huge brawl, and I think about 19 people were killed Yep, in this huge brawl. Just the fist fight. Must have been Literally insane. fist fight. Yeah. Um, like a, gang, a Gangs of New York type fight. Mm-hmm. It was nuts. But, yeah, they have border disputes and stuff like that, and, you know, they're neither country is dumb enough to get into a war with each other and start launching nukes because both of them are armed with nuclear weapons. Um you know, they don't have the best relationships. And then, um, you know, if you look at China and Russia, they have a 2,600-mile 26, border. And between that border, there's only a handful of, like, railways and crossings. I think there's, like, about 25 crossing points in total. So mm-hmm. I guess there's it's a very vast border. Mm-hmm. However... I guess the it's a it's a long d- despite their them sharing a border, you know, it's a very long distance from Moscow to Beijing. Yeah, it's thousands of miles. <laughs> it's a very long flight. Yeah, but I mean, look, there's there's more than that, you know. Uh, and you point out a lot of really good points. Yeah, about those are just how, some of the top of top of mind. Yeah, they, um, things that they, I can think that there's there's some there's some issues there too. So uh, a few other things. Um, there was a. Uh, worldwide threat assessment that the U.S. did in 2019, uh, and Russia and China, you know, they said that they were more aligned at any point since the 50s. And I know you pointed out in in the early part uh, of the episode, and and um, I like we were saying before, I think that it's easy for you to come to the conclusion that Russia and China are creating an alliance. But you know, it, some of the things that Henry just said are some of the starts of some of the problems that you can see. And I think another big one are economic issues 
Uh, and you, know, you might stop me and say, well, Danny, aren't they doing so much, you know, trade with each other? And the answer is yes, but yes, but right. Uh, so usually economic cooperation is a good thing, but sometimes it can manifest trade imbalance. And with Russia and China specifically, China imports or exports a ton of cheap manufactured goods into Russia and Russia exports valuable raw materials and weapons. And this creates a pretty big Im uh, imbalance where China, China is actually way out exporting Russia um, by a lot. And when, you, and when you have an economy like Russia where you're just exporting and you're selling your natural resources and you're mm -hmm. not building anything, and you're not right. creating stuff, you're, guar you're guaranteed to you're gonna lose. be poor. You're guaranteed yep. to be poor. You're going to lose, right. And, and what's interesting about this is that there are so many economic sanctions on Russia right now, and they have been worsening. And that made the imbalance, the trade imbalance, even worse because China knows that Russia has all of these sanctions on them. And so they're like, all right, well, if you can't sell your gas to other countries, then you have to sell it to us. And if that's the case, then they start using that as leverage to demand lower and lower prices on Russian oil and gas. Which is a little fucked up, but I could see where China's going, right? Why wouldn't they want to get a better deal on on that stuff? And they're pretty good at it. Uh, the Russian GDP is 1.7 trillion, and that was in 2018, and China's is 13.6 trillion. That's eight times the size, and it's still growing. And China's uh, gonna outpace the U.S.'s GDP very soon. So, you know, in terms of trade, China and Russia want to double to 200 billion by 2024 which is significant but that's still less than a third of china's trade with the u.s and we're apparently antagonistic against each other you know so 200 billion is cool you know it's cooler three times that you know and so sometimes when you think about it you know in, in an economic frame of view a partnership between Russia and China is probably more important for Russia than it is for China because they can make money elsewhere on a military front. And this is where like a lot of people are like, oh, but, you know, Russia helps China because China's military sucks and they're providing them with all this high tech stuff. You know, you mentioned, Henry, that they were working on, you know, an early warning system for missile defense. Yeah, all that is true. Right. However, in 2017, China made the largest absolute increase in military spending globally, meaning they increased their military spending by by a higher percent than anyone else in the world. In that same year, Russia made the largest decrease globally. So the, the trend they're trending in opposite directions. China is absolutely dominating Russia uh, by more than $52 billion in um, military expenditure and all the tech that Russia is giving to China and selling to China, their scientists are doing what they do best and reverse engineering it and basically stealing it, right? So it it's not going to be long before China can just, I mean, look at, look at China's stealth strike fighter, which is basically a F-35 clone, right? They're really good at copying, like very, very good at it. It's not going to take them a very long time to figure out how to make their own shit. So... You know, the Russian we, arms company uh, Rostec, mm -hmm. they accused China of stealing um, tech, military technology. 
that's their game. They they do this in so many different sectors. Why wouldn't they do it in the military? In the military industrial, why wouldn't they? You know. So I mean, if you look where, at that's where their biggest incentive is. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Their biggest weakness happens to be in the military. Like, if they're stealing like Snapchat information, like I mean that's interesting, but that's not. It's inconsequential in geopolitics. You know. Like, no one gives a fuck how many dick pics they can steal from you. <laughs> you know, what they want is... I think that's actually military pretty technology. important. I think, I actually think that's important in geopolitics. What, dick pics? How many dick, how many dick <laughs> pics you can steal from somebody. I think that that's what primarily drives uh, foreign policy in the world, <laughs> is who has a dick pic on who. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. That's true. See Steel Dossier. Uh, <laughs> oh come on! Don't, I'm just I'm joking. Don't. I'm joking. You're joking. <laughs> I'm, I'm just fucking around. Uh, I guess my point here is that okay, so Russia does dominate on the military sphere, but China is spending way more money on on their military, and they steal really good. So at a certain point, there's going to be a shift where Chinese military is going to be just as good, if not better, than Russia. You know, so that edge that Russia has isn't going to be there. And so when you think about a like an alliance between the two, there's you would assume that China has the upper hand here and they would be the senior partner in an alliance. And that's not what Russia's policymakers want at all. They don't want to take a backseat to China. And China definitely doesn't want to take a backseat to Russia either, right? So, you know, they're both very big proud nations like they're if they were going to come together at all, they would the only way that they would agree is if they were equals and even i think equality might not be on the cards for them and so it sounds like from a military perspective a russian chinese alliance probably is more trouble than it's worth there's so much more to this there's geopolitics too you were talking a little bit about central asia right uh and i definitely want to go back into that uh so Central Asia is Russia's backyard, basically. Like since the 1800s, Central Asia has been a part of, you know, the the Russian sphere of influence. And and even after the Soviet Union fell, Russia is still, till this day, able to maintain a super strong presence in the region, you know, but not without some competitors. And China happens to be one of those competitors. You know, both China and Russia, uh, you know, when you pull Central Asian um, uh, countries, they would uh, say that Russia is their top partner uh, in geopolitics, but China is a close second, and China's influence grows every day, and this kind of pisses off Russia because that's their backyard, that's their hood. And and I think the reason why China does a really good job here is the strategy, uh, and you pointed this out a little bit here, but I'm going to really nail it down. Russia uses hard power, right? So basically they have a crazy powerful military and nukes, and they could bully other countries into doing what they want, or more importantly, just not to fuck with them, right? So in the case of Kazakhstan, they're able to use that military power to, you know, put down a revolt, right? Or, you know, in, in uh, Ukraine, you know, they're able to put a bunch of military on the border and say, you know, don't fuck around too much because, like, we're here, you know? So they use that hard power to get what they want geopolitically. China, on the other hand, uses soft power. So why threaten sanctions or military intervention when you just buy up industry, right? 
So what they do is they go into smaller countries and they buy up those major critical infrastructures and they build it up. And, you know, to some to their credit, sometimes it's really positive, but more often it's predatory and it makes that country dependent on them for their infrastructure. And that's been China's strategy. So since Russia's relying more on hard power for geopolitics, this damages Russia's reputation, right? So say whatever you want about the the uh, annexation of Crimea, you know, what doesn't matter what side you're on, there's obviously implications negatively about that outcome, regardless of what, what you know, uh, what went down. There's going to be some apprehension about Russia increasing their borders. The, the same apprehension is in, you know, Georgia, where they are currently occupying, you know. So when you use hard power, you get hard power repercussion. But soft power doesn't necessarily have that same negative connotation. The thing is that Russia using hard power and being friends with China worries the world about both countries, right? Because if Russia and China are friends and Russia goes and annexes, let's say they, they take the Donbass, like we were talking about a couple episodes ago, right? The world's going to be like, yo, China, what do you think about this? And depending on how they answer might hurt their relationships and, and might hurt their plans, which is more soft power, not hard power. You look at Russia's support for separatist movements in Georgia and Ukraine, annexation of Crimea, you know, these are all things that put China in a weird spot. And they have to answer whether or not they approve of what Russia is doing. And it puts a lot of extra heat on China that I don't think China wants. Because that's not how they play the game. That is, that is interesting. How would they react if, um, is the, is the BRI important to these countries in Eastern Europe or so important to these European countries where, um, you know, they, where China can get, get a pass from not, um, making like a, a public statement regarding maybe a, um, I guess whatever NATO in general and Russian mm -hmm. gripes about Russia's gripes about NATO. Right. Um, it's, in it's interesting. Yeah. But I mean, um, the closer that Russia and China get together, the more like, you know, you, 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 you kind of guilty by association, you know what I mean? And yeah. that, that could, it, it provides a problem because China's more interested in just dominating economically everywhere. Right. They're not trying at least actively to dominate militarily. And they, they there's just a difference in the strategy there. Well, unlike Russia, they're not on the border of NATO, so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They might be at so some point, but it's true. Yeah, if NATO keeps on expanding. <laughs> expanding, exactly. <laughs> you know, but until that time, you know, they, they don't they've have, got they don't that have buffer. To deal, they don't have to deal with, like, the the NATO, the military alliance being built on their doorstep. But then, you know, there's, like, the new Asian form of NATO that mm -hmm. is a— uh, kind kind of in development yep yep i want to talk about demographics too because this is another thing that kind of messes with the um with the dynamic between russia and china so uh in the russian far east it's like nobody lives there like nobody lives there uh, especially compared to china in that region you know there's so many people who live in china <laughs> you know like most in the world uh and i say that because uh, there's a lot of migration that happens too. So something like three to 500 
thousand ethnic Chinese people live in Russia's Far East, and that number keeps growing. And so there's some estimates that say that if that current migration continues, that ethnic Chinese people will be the majority in Russia's Far East by 2030. So they're going to have a majority popu ethnic population there. And so I just want you to think through the implications of that because, you know, both countries historically use narratives to justify their geopolitical ambitions. And, you know, you can look at Russia claiming Crimea on historical grounds. You could also look at China and Chinese nationalists saying that the Russian Far East, including Vladivostok, ah, fuck that fucking city, Vladivostok, that was taken from them from Russia in the 1900s. And now they have all of these people that live there. They could very quickly become the majority there. Right? So. Imagine if there was a Russian-Chinese alliance, and you know, in this case, I'm, I'm pointing out that Russia is probably going to be the senior, you know, and they have a majority in the Russian Far East. They're they could probably annex that that area, or just be like, "Yo, Russia, that we're taking this back." And even if they don't have a, an alliance, this problem is still a problem. Right, so if you're on the if you're on the side of, of Russia, at least on a historical basis, and say that Crimea was historically Russian, and that their population was primarily majority Russian, and that's what um, that was the 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 grounds by which it was okay to to annex that territory, China could be doing this very soon to the Russian Far East. Same argument. Yeah, I don't see that happening, though. I don't see China taking an aggressive stance towards any type of... I mean, they really don't have a history of annexing territory. They don't have a history of it, but if they want it, they can have it on the same grounds. They could. I think that they're both... I think both of these countries are kind of pragmatic the way they look at each other, and I don't think they would ever do anything like that, um, to be completely honest. Like, they're... Um, like you mentioned before, they're not going to jump into each other's arms and give each other a huge hug, but um, they understand the strategic importance of um, their economic trade and a kind of a, at least military cooperation on some issues. I don't think they'd ever want to break that. They kind of need each other. For how long? I think more so right now. They, they're, <laughs> they're in a position where they need each other. There's There's, I think, a lot of these things that would divide them like the um the discrepancy and trade and things like that i think those are things that they can ultimately get over um due to the reasons why you know they're they're kind of forced into this um this marriage yeah man i i hear that i i, I don't think that any of this is undoable but i think there's just at this point, if you're sitting down and you're reading the news and you're worried about Russia and China getting together with like a fucking military pact, I think it's important for you to like take a skeptical approach to that and see that they're, you know, historically they've butted heads, you know, over many years and they'll, they're on again, off again. And right now it seems like they're on again, but literally any one little thing can happen. And we pointed out a number of issues already 
that could set them off on and off again path. So I personally don't think that Russia and China will anytime soon come to a formal agreement with one another. Very little. There's, In my opinion, there's very little to gain for China right now. What's that TV show about the alternate history of World War II when Man in the High Castle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen anytime soon. No. Where the Russian-Chinese pact version of that, where mm-hmm. Russia invades the Atlantic Ocean from the Atlantic Ocean, and then China invades from the Pacific Ocean? Nope. I wouldn't be too worried about that. Nope. If anything, we'll all. just die in a nuclear war. <laughs> that seems more likely, yeah. <laughs> seems much more likely. It seems probably a million times more likely than both of these countries invading from the east from the east and west coast. Look, I think I think um, if I were Russia and China, what I would do is set up a relationship that is like the U.S.'s relationship with Taiwan. Strategic ambiguity. I think they should be... They should flirt with each other as much as they're doing, right? I think they should continue increasing their trade, and they should figure out the trade imbalance so that they don't kill each other about it. I think they should continue cooperating militarily, but not specifically say that they're going to get each other's backs. Just, like, do it enough where... People are worried, <laughs> you know, uh, but not not fully say like, you know, if they had a relationship status on Facebook, it should be it's complicated. Just put it that way. Sure. That's fair. That's fair enough. Because I don't think there's benefits. It's complicated, for- but they're taking pictures on Instagram. It, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. I think that is an episode, right? I think so. All Sounds right. like one. Um, <laughs> let's let's peace out. Thanks, guys, for listening to another episode of Bro History. If you want to support the show, you can join us on Slack. Or, excuse me, you can join us on our Patreon and get access to our Slack account. Um, it is a um, great channel. to. It's a great way to uh, communicate with us. We have a really, very fun Slack channel. And then we... Uh, you can also rate and review our podcast on Apple or Spotify now. So if you have Spotify, uh, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. They just released a feature where you're able to rate and review or, or at least rate the podcast. So do that if you're on Spotify. And um, anything else? No, man. Uh, super looking forward to the next million uh, downloads. So thanks again for, for supporting the show in that way, too. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for continuing to listen and, and giving us your attention and uh, like Listen, I I understand that means a lot. Like to to give your to listen to a podcast and to you know spend an hour and a half listening to a show every single week. I understand that's time that you could be using on other things, listening to another show. And um, you know, I really appreciate that people are using that hour and a half to listen to our show. Like, I, it just means the world to me. So yeah, um, same. To, to hear our to hear our um, semi-educated takes is, <laughs> yeah. is uh, pretty amazing um, alright enjoy the rest of your week and we will be back next week peace
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.